0: Welcome to day two of our retreat. I hope when you are seeing this, whether live or later, you're well rested after day one. And um, in today's meditation instructions, I would love to invite you into a practice called mental noting or naming of an experience. My wife, she's a photographer. And um, what I've noticed is when she frames her work, I pay way more attention to it than if she would just show me on a phone, on an iPad. There's something different about my attention, and I see more when she has framed her work, her photography. And this, this um, technique of mental noting, in a way, can do the same thing, where in practice we pause, also sometimes specifically for an experience that is really calling for our attention, and see if we can name it. And I remember when I started this practice and I was invited to do this in my meditation that I only had two categories <laughs> that I would um, use in my naming. I, was, I wasn't I was so fluid in the beginning. One was annoyed. So I'd be sitting or walking. Oh, well, annoyed. Annoyed's here. And then another one was pretty okay. And those were my first two um, ways of really naming uh, my experience. And um, and when I got a hang of it, I started to notice that this recognizing accurately what's happening in the moment, it leans on perception. We have to kind of perceive and know, oh, this is what's happening. And in this meditation that I'm invite you into in a few moments, please use a lot of creativity and see if it works for you, if it actually supports becoming mindful more continuously. And also see if it supports this sense of really seeing clearly, what's this experience like? To become interested and curious, just like when we look at framed art or photography. I've also noticed that sometimes there might be an experience and we just don't really know what it is. Then instead of kind of trying to figure it out, I found it way more helpful to just go not knowing. Not knowing to really feel what that experience is like, not really knowing the predominant experience. So this is really an invitation to sometimes pause and to see if you can make a gentle mental note. This is what's predominant in my experience right now. Using your own language, maybe even using imagery. If you're more of a visual kind of thinker or person, right? And sometimes you'll just recognize immediately just a felt sense and it's not even necessary to name the experience. The reason why this is so powerful is that this recognizing accurately what's going on is also quite often the first step in the Buddhist teachings in befriending difficult mind states. And this will be also the topic of our talk after our meditation, because we really need to recognize first what's happening in order to meet it, right? And so, for this meditation, um, which we'll do for about 25 minutes, I want to invite you into a comfortable position, but also one that's alert. The Buddhist teachings often talk about the middle way. So, inviting you to see if it's possible to assume a seated posture. And again, if you like to first kind of orient yourself again in the space you're in, I'm taking your time, you are on retreat. And if you like, maybe you lengthen the spine a little. If you would sit upright. Tuck in the chin in a little bit. And letting the eyes rest keeping them still. Just finding one spot you can gaze at, close your eyes if you feel comfortable. And to start with the naming Joseph invited us into yesterday, of there is a body, there is a body. And then to listen within that framework, that noting, how is the body speaking to you in this very moment? Can you invite a sense of ease into the body, loosening the jaw, softening the belly, softening the mask of the face? Pause. There is a body. There is a body. I'm inviting you now to see if you can feel the air in the room or the space you're in, touching the skin of the face. It's okay if you cannot feel it, but just have a look if you like. and to feel how the air slowly goes into the body and to feel how the body pushes the air out feeling the body breathe in-breath? What word or image would frame that that experience? What about the out-breath? could be as simple as in out framing the experience of breathing in and breathing out explore. How does the belly and the body move on the rhythm of the breath? can even explore whether the breath feels long or short what happens if you tune to sounds, the receiving of sounds, the hearing. And gently name hearing, or apply a mental image. Recognizing accurately, hearing is happening. There is hearing. I invite you now to apply this technique of naming or mental noting to your present mind state. The mind peaceful or restless. It craving something? Is it sleepy? How would you name your current mind state? How does this mind state feel in the body? Is the mind state changing or deepening? Does it feel helpful to note it? Nature of mind is to think. I'm inviting you to check if there's thinking happening right now. Word thoughts, image thoughts. What would it be like to name oh there is thinking? or whatever label that works for you to frame the experience of thinking. Perhaps exploring how long does a thought last? inviting you now into a period of time of some silence and just to explore what supports the continuity of moment-to-moment mindfulness would it be helpful to return to there is a body where there is the breath in out tuning the sounds, but also to explore when another experience is calling for your attention. And see if it's helpful to make a gentle mental note. It's as if you're asking this question, what's happening now? And then to explore, how is that experience unfolding in the body? Is it changing? And see if you can meet it with welcome, with kindness and curiosity and care. And take your time neuron retreat. what's happening right now? Is it helpful to name your experience? And what happens if you do so? Whatever is being known right now, is it possible to meet it with kindness, curiosity, and care? Inviting a bell. There's hearing. Maybe noticing what it's like to note seeing. Maybe the eyes are seeing the screen, the periphery around it. Is it helpful to make that mental note there is seeing? And also check if your body is still in a comfortable position. Maybe it's been sitting quietly and you want to move a little bit or stretch a little bit. Just feel invited. And as you're doing so or remaining silent in your body posture and quiet, what's it like to say there is a body? start speaking in a few moments, but I'd like to invite you to see if you can actually also still feel the body as you're slowly maybe also attuning to the visuals of the video. And to see if it's possible, even in the listening, if uh, a strong reaction I come up, and we'll pause in the talk a few times as well to see again if you can note. Really start to kind of pause for a moment and see this is the current actual experience, the truth of experience right now. Because there is an enormous power in this technique of simple recognition. And it's the first step in befriending also obstacles or hindrances, difficult mind states both within ourselves and others. Because it's kind of ingenious. Because what the Buddha invites us to do is to turn these obstacles that we might notice in meditation, in life, into meditation objects. And something shifts Then, When we become mindful of the experience, it can kind of unlock a sense of, what can I learn here? It can unlock a sense of curiosity. And so difficult mind states, when we are mindful of them, can become opportunities for growth. And because this retreat is unfolding in your home and you might be interacting with other beings, it's really interesting to see that the Buddhist teaching was very relational. And so with these mind states that we, you might be used to just naming internally, in the same way, we can also do that with others. And sometimes others will do it with us. I'm laughing because I'm thinking of Lou, our seven-year-old. And sometimes without me even accurately recognizing being frustrated, he already kind of tells me. Daddy, why are you so upset? You know, because sometimes it's easier to see all these different mind states in others. According to my wife, sometimes this eyebrow goes up. And then she goes, oh, what's up? Are you mad? And then sometimes her recognizing of my mind state helps me also to recognize it. And so um, these suggestions that the Buddha is offering in terms of befriending difficult mind states, hindrances, they can be applied both internally, externally with other people, but also, and this was kind of quite intriguing for me in the beginning, he suggested to be mindful of these experiences, both internal and external. And I'm now for 10 months in a small space in Australia here, with the same three people a lot of the time. And I'm doing tons of homeschooling with the first grader. Sometimes I actually remember this teaching, like, what would it be like if I name? The vibe in the room that I'm part of. And I would go, ha, huh, there's frustration. I wouldn't name it, but it was really helpful just to see that sense of restlessness or frustration that was kind of manifesting within the three of us. It's so also really want to encourage you um, outside of maybe formal practice on your retreat where you're more internally oriented. To also sometimes see if you can actually apply mindfulness-oriented externally to others, to other beings, but also to the the space, the group that you're part of. It can be very revealing. And I want to use in today's talk, the Buddhist teaching on five very specific obstacles that when we're not mindful of them are hindering our practice of staying present, kind. But these five obstacles are also hindering a sense of being happy in life and peaceful. And they're called the five hindrances and I want to kind of reflect with you on each one of them. And each one of them will benefit from this recognizing accurately, which we train, actually, in the naming or noting technique in our practice. And what I found really, really interesting, in the old ancient scriptures, the Buddha talks about When one of these five obstacles or hindrances is present, or all of them, they prevent seeing the good in oneself, they prevent seeing the good in others, and they prevent the seeing the good in both, both oneself and others. These five hindrances are The first one Joseph talked at length about yesterday, desire, aversion or anger, sleepiness and dullness, they're kind of a pair, and I'll unpack that a little later. The fourth, restlessness and worry, they're a pair too. And the last one is doubt. I just want to invite you to pause and see if that teaching of that, it prevents seeing the good in oneself, others or both. If that kind of resonates for you, Even just remembering a time when you did feel a sense of really being lost in craving or angry, restless. Is it true that it covers up our ability to see clearly. Another thing that I wanna say before I start speaking about the first one is, They are very natural, and they're very human. And sometimes the word hindrance or obstacle could mean, it definitely did that in the beginning of my practice, could mean like I have to get rid of them. And I would have this idea that if as long as I'm mindful of them, they would go away. But then with that type of attitude, you're only kind of creating more, craving for it to go away, more hindrances. But that word can sometimes apply like, oh, it shouldn't be here. But really want to invite you to see them as very natural occurrences and that they're not a personal failing, they're human. And so the first one, In this teaching, it's called sensual or sense desire, the first hindrance or craving, wanting. It's that experience that the mind wants something that it doesn't have, but it knows it could probably get it. And it also knows it'll be gratifying to some extent. And in last night's talk, Joseph talked about that this craving is fed also by this proliferating tendency that things belong to me, this idea of mine, right? I and mean, quite often, it has a fixating quality. It's like that the thoughts about whatever is being craved, to me, the image that comes to mind is like vultures circling to look for a cadaver. And that's how the mind is kind of quite obsessed when sense desire is present. And that can happen through the all, like we reflected on in Joseph's talk, through all the six senses, you know, this tendency to want something. And the problem with them is that they're never fully satisfactory. They end or didn't really kind of deliver what we wanted. It takes a lot of energy, this wanting. I really resonated with the migraines of desire, as Joseph put it. And so in befriending and being with this first hindrance, the Buddha also suggested, see if you can investigate the conditions leading to craving. Because craving too is conditioned by other phenomena. When does it usually start for you? Is it when there's a sense of boredom, not knowing what to do? I remember on a retreat, (laughs) it was quite concentrated. And then boredom slowly came in. And I named it boredom, boredom. And then before I knew it, I started to fantasize. It was quite lovely. And in that one sitting, I remember so clearly, because I thought I was very mindful, but I wasn't seeing the craving for pleasurable thoughts. I kind of had this idea of writing a whole book. I had the title. It would be, You're Never Too Late for the Present Moment. And I was just totally kind of lost in fantasizing. And when we start to really start to become interested in what conditions craving, there are so many opportunities to see it arise. And the one thing that I've really seen happening over the last, I think about 17, 18 years now, is the craving for so many people for visual input through their devices. There's a study that's been done that says that the average American adult spends 25% of their waking time looking at a device. And this is outside of TV and computer, actually. And I, too, in the mornings when I wake up, I have the good habit now of not having it next to the bed. I so clearly sometimes see the mind going, when I see it, should I pick it up? And then I say, no, I don't want to pick it up. And then sometimes I realize also that I don't not want to pick it up. And again, it feels like this this little, like, ah, costing a lot of energy. And it's not just internally with objects that are quite addictive. It's also externally. The way our society is structured. And I love... The suggestions of the the ads that Joseph kind of offered as examples. One in New York that, as a European, I found completely weird, was this ad that said, um, "Pain? Question mark. You need law." And I remember thinking, "Pain? You need law. Pain? I need care. Maybe a hospital, doctor." It took a while for me to even get it. That in America, sometimes there's this, from my perspective, a lot of uh, suing happening over things. What's driving it? And we all face it. And I think it's also helpful to see that, to come to terms with it, it not being so personal. And in a high school where... um, I used to teach in Manhattan meditation. Um, We had very lovely, we call them mindful dialogues with about a group of 30 kids. And one time, um, the group, quite a few came to me and said, can you teach us a meditation that we, um, that kind of addresses our cell phone addiction? And I said, okay, well, one thing that we could do is to start studying first this craving or this, this tendency for sense desire. So what we came up with is we put a yoga mat in the middle. The 30 of us would sit around it and we would all put our phones on the yoga mat and then off silent mode. So you would hear, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, when the text comes or when someone rings. I asked Chantal, my wife, to call me a few times and leave some texts. And then the only thing we did, and that's again that first step of accurately recognizing was see what it feels like in your body and just look at the map. So we had 30 plus cell phones and it was so interesting to see my mind also and my body going, leaning a little forward when I heard the sound, it was so conditioned. Sometimes craving just arises because we see something that we like, and then all of a sudden we want it. And there was one young woman, 17, 16, Stephanie, and she she was so embodying this that we all kind of saw it because she kind of went up, she looked left, she looked right, and she went back, and then all of a sudden, she did like this and she got up and she actually took the phone and we kind of had this agreement, like we'll ring a bell first, but she said, no, no, I'm picking it up. She, pick, she picked it up, looked at it, and then I could see her shoulders drop. It wasn't for her. She had no messages. And for all of us, it was such a powerful experience as a community to see, oh, this is the stress Unease, the dis ease that can come from craving. So that's the first step, just recognizing it. Another thing that I found really powerful in the Buddhist teaching is that he also suggested be mindful of the absence of a mind of a hindrance. But maybe you could do it right now as you pause for a moment. Is there any wanting for an experience? You can, could name it, but maybe the answer is no. Can you name? There's the absence of sense desire. I want to encourage you also in the course of the retreat to notice the absence of craving or to notice that it was there it was recognized maybe there was some more more space to hold it and you practice renunciation I've noticed that it It actually feels like a gain for me instead of a loss of not always have to fulfill what the mind desires. The second hindrance, it's called ill will, has many descriptions, aversion, anger, frustration, resistance. My kids in New York say, feeling mad, mad. What's interesting that for all the hindrances, the Buddha has a kind of a nice description of a bowl of water. Maybe in ancient India, they were used as uh, mirrors because if the water is clear and you know, it's not touched by wind, we can see our reflection. And so with sense desire, he made this idea of, imagine if that bowl of water is full of colors, right? You can't see your reflection. You can't see the good. With ill will, he said that bowl of water is boiling. can't see your reflection in boiling water. And one of the things I like about this mental... Uh, noting of an experience is then to see how it applies and kind of manifests in the body. And when there's anger, the body gets hot. In Dutch, we even have a word for someone who's angry a lot, that's in hoofd, that one, hot-headed. And so there's this strong tendency to not want what we're dealing with. And it has many, many manifestations. One that I saw very clearly on the retreats is that in the, at the evening Dharma talk, I was so engaged, you know, really kind of loving to hear the Dharma. The bell would ring and then the teacher would suggest I do some walking, and I've already done a lot of walking and sitting practice in my mind Oh, walking, right? And it's so helpful to maybe not immediately start walking and kind of bypass the anger, but even to really kind of see it again clearly, recognizing. I even had that with instructions of breathing. I kind of felt quite a bit of aversion to Feel the body breathe. It wasn't a neutral kind of anchor for me. It was very helpful to start to see that there was kind of a, an attitude of resistance that was present for me. Someone shared in the questions that we're receiving from you and that we, we appreciate The experience of expecting that the dishes are done by teenage kids as a condition for resistance or anger to arise. And when we practice meditation and there's some momentum of mindfulness, we do get to see things way clear. And I remember when I was on retreat once, I got this, in hindsight, beautiful opportunity to study rage, really, really angry. And it happened because I started to notice after a while that there was someone behind me making, from my perception, very annoying sounds. And it kind of, in the beginning, I was just noticing, oh, sounds, hearing, felt neutral. But then the patterns start to become clear, like, oh, this person is gonna do this every sitting. And I still have weeks to go with that person behind me. And I really noticed I got upset. And also some fear, like after walking meditation, I would go back in halls hall and oh, there he is again, huh. Now, it was actually very helpful is to also name it in exchange with a teacher. And then you have their presence also kind of, you know, holding the space. So I started to share this to my teacher, Carol Wilson, and her response was actually quite helpful. (laughs) She kind of leaned forward a little bit and she goes, we hire these people just for the yogis to see aversion arise and to really learn to be with ill will. <laughs> and that kind of took something out for me. I was like, ah, oh. and it gave me new energy to meet ill will or anger, frustration. I've been invited by a lot of kids in my teaching in New York to offer ways to be with anger. Because you know, a lot of kids that I've worked with say, well, I find it hard to control my anger. What's an anger management technique? Now, one time there was a girl in a group of kids who were in residential treatment And she goes, when I'm angry, I always ask myself, my guidance counselor taught me, what do I care about? And this brings us again to what the Buddha asked us also to do is to see what are the conditions that are present when anger arises. What's at stake? because it can be a very natural human response to being treated unjust or witnessing violence, injustice, disrespect. And so in many classes where I um, work with young people, we kind of ask ourselves now, what triggers your anger the most? It's a very powerful inquiry. And what I hear the most from kids in schools, the middle schools, is lying when another person is dishonest. I want to pause for a moment and kind of do a little bit of an investigation for you, if you'd like, and kind of reflect on when was the last time that you felt angry, frustration, or ill will? Can you do a little reflection, not go very deep into the why, but what was causing it? So this can be a helpful exercise from time to time. And so one instruction that I found helpful is when, for example, anger is present, I also want to ask myself, how is the mind relating to it? So that you even get more information of this experience. Maybe a broader frame. And you know, when I ask that question, "How is the mind relating?" Quite often, what I see is disappointment or sadness, and a lot of judgment. Just noticing the judgment to the person, maybe who is causing the anger, but also self-judgment like seeing myself saying, like, I should be over this. And so in the naming, what I've also found very powerful is this difference between saying and denoting, there is anger, compared to, I'm angry. Maybe the I am is already there again that Joseph talked about, conceit. It takes takes that personal out of it a little. Another thing that's been very helpful for me in being with anger and any um, hindering mind state is to see if I can name it also as nature operating. A month ago, here in the trailer, all our pipes rose. For about a week or so, we didn't have water. We had to get it in the trailer park. And um, I was upset. Didn't like it. But I noticed that I I couldn't really point at any being, including myself, for being angry. It was just nature. It was unusually cold in the Netherlands for about a week. And that's quite powerful because what if we would see other people's behavior also as nature manifesting? You notice that there's more compassion and a willingness to welcome than the experience. I'm a really big fan of Baruch Spinoza, this Dutch philosopher, 17th century philosopher, and This is how he puts it. He says, I have striven not to laugh at human actions, not to weep at them, nor to hate them, but to understand them. I really like this idea of can I understand it? And that's what, you know, this question of like, First starting to frame it and then seeing like, how am I relating? What else is here? And kind of start this process of understanding. last thing and befriending and being with anger. I really like an image that Thich Nhat Hanh uses. He said, what would it be like if you would hold the anger that you are aware of, like a caretaker holds a newborn who's upset? So maybe bringing to mind last night's practice that Roxanne offered. Is it helpful to kind of maybe invite kindness or compassion when we are angry? Which is just nature manifesting at that time. And um, as a parent of a seven-year-old, I'm really interested in the Buddha's advice to Rahula, which was his, accordingly, was his son. And according to the commentaries, he's often seven years. And so he gave this advice to his son, a seven-year-old. He said, cultivate Rahula, a meditation on loving kindness. For by cultivating loving kindness, ill will is banished forever. Cultivate, too, a meditation on compassion, for by cultivating compassion, you will find harm and cruelty disappear. As I'm just reading these words, I'm just hearing Roxanne's voice again, planting the seed of loving-kindness. So, pausing and asking you is anger present or absent right now? I'm inviting you now into reflecting on the third hindrance, the first sense desire, second ill will. Third is called sleepiness and dullness. They're kind of a pair. And one thing that my experience has been is like being in this pandemic has been exhausting. I so often caught myself thinking, I am tired. And then sometimes mixed with aversion, I'm tired of this. And what I've noticed now, having lived in New York for 12 years, if you ask a New Yorker on the street, how are you? Two answers you usually get, good or tired. Just feeling tired is is an, an experience that we have often in our society. And when I was learning the Buddhist teaching in English, I, this is the translations I got. The third hindrance is sloth and torpor. And I had no idea what these words meant, so I looked them up. That was helpful because I found out that sloth is this really sweet-looking animal that we in Dutch call zaya. And that would literally mean lazy being because it's really slow and it sleeps all the time. And then torpor, I looked up, and the dictionary said it's a state of mental and motor inactivity with partial or total insensibility. It's a state of lowered physiologic, physiological activity, typically characterized by reduced metabolism, heart rate, body temperature, it's especially happening in hibernating animals. I want to ask you, have you been sleepy? Maybe during formal practice, the end of the evening. I I usually love to ask that question when teaching at IMS, and so many people raise their hand. That, to me, is a form of relational meditation when you see, oh, this mind state, not personal. It's shared by all beings. And what is the experience like? It's like, feels heavy in the body. It actually feels quite peaceful. And what I've noticed, what conditions it is sometimes first the mind being very concentrated, calm, and then slowly kind of lull into a more dreamy state. very normal while meditating or on retreat. And then you just don't have dry or energy. The simile of the bowl of water now, the Buddha compared it with a bowl that's covered with algae, you know, like this thick blanket that sleepiness has. I think, in terms of again also noticing what's conditioning it, it's for example, seeing when we might use a sense of feeling sleepy or dullness unconsciously perhaps, to retreat from something, to retreat from an experience. I've noticed in the juvenile detention centers where I've been teaching meditation a lot, the kids often say that for them is a helpful way of coping with the nervousness of going to court, just sleep on it and just not have to deal with it. I think one of the ways to be with this hindrance is to see if you can become interested in it. Perhaps feel the energy shift in the body and the mind. The Buddha had some very interesting suggestions. He would say, maybe change your body posture, open your eyes, splash some water in your face if you can. One of the last suggestions is one of my favorites. He would say, "Pinch your earlobes, I kind of pull on them." Of course, I can't help now thinking, when I see all these statues of the Buddha with these long earlobes, like, "Oh, the Buddha must have been sleepy and practicing a lot with this hindrance." This quote I have from the internet. That's how specific I is. Uh, this is how specific I am with my source. Sometimes, sleep is the best meditation. And you probably know the Buddha gets misquoted on social media a lot. Because he would say, this dharma that I'm teaching is for developing energy and not for developing laziness. But sometimes, that was actually the last suggestion the Buddha gave in being with sleepiness the best thing we can do is actually to take a nap and to rest and to acknowledge, I'm exhausted. Now when you notice that you actually do have some energy, I'm really inviting you to be with it. You might see that it's just a wave of energy coming and going. Their sleepiness. I'm just checking right now, is it present or absent? The fourth hindrance, the Buddha identified to really be mindful of when it's present, is a pair again: restlessness and worry. And in the ancient scriptures, the Pali Canon there is a, um, a discourse where Anaruda, a monk, is talking to another disciple of the Buddha, Sariputta. And he says that, that he's kind of complaining that despite all his concentrative attainments and unshaken energy and well-established mindfulness, he's unable to break through to full realization, to full awakening. And in reply, Sariputta points out to Anuruddha, saying you're boasting. There's boasting of energy, of, of concentration attainments. That boasting is nothing but a manifestation of conceit. And this unshaken energy that you're talking about is simply restlessness operating. And this concern about not having awakened yet, that was just worry. And I kind of looked at all these five hindrances, like, what is the thing that the Buddha suggested to most to be with him? And I found out that it's good friendship, suitable conversations. Really, this invitation to find refuge in community. And so this fourth hindrance has this, especially the restlessness It has this quality of the mind wants to fix something. When I note restlessness, usually there is a thought kind of in this area, how can I fix this? I should be doing something. Like we might be sitting in practice, and all of a sudden we realize, oh, I forgot something, this email. And then proliferation starts. The mind really is agitated and it wants to think its way through it. Immediate action. All kind of manifestations of restlessness. And worry is quite near it. Worry has that element of fear in it. Worry is the what-if thoughts. What if this is going to happen tomorrow? What if they think that blah blah blah? Worrying is like praying for stuff that you don't want. And also again and kind of checking like what's conditioning it, what else is present. I've noticed often with worry that there's a sense of regret or feeling guilty of something that I might not have done right. I love this from Mark Twain, he says, without understanding, our worries and thoughts create huge unnecessary problems, and my life has filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. And now the bowl of water is touched by wind. Can't see our reflection when we're restless. And so the first step is to see if you can be with it again and name it and allowing yourself to feel its manifestation in the body. One young woman in the detention center said that she once applied this technique of really noticing the worrying. And she said, during court, I was still terrified. I kept saying, worrying, worrying. My future is on the line. What if? And she said, The only difference that I noticed when I came back and shared with the other girls in the hall I was with, I could actually remember everything the judge had had said. And so there's something really powerful about holding all this with awareness. It's not gonna go away. And I've also noticed that when being mindful of fear or anger, or desire, the part of me that is mindful of it isn't the hindrance. So mindfulness can know ill will, worry, or restlessness, but it's not made out of it. That's kind of, again, a manifestation for me of taking refuge in kind awareness in Buddha. I also want to acknowledge that sometimes it's just way too overwhelming, and being mindful of it is not the right step. And then, what the Buddha suggested, and I really take that to hard times, is saying, is there a way to calm yourself? And one thing he suggested is mindfulness of breathing as an effective method to calm all this thinking activity of the mind. Yonge Minyo Rinpoche, Tibetan master, once came to my classes in a juvenile detention center. And he, he was asked by the young guys, what do you do when you're fearful? And he offered this very powerful meditation to us. He said, feel my body breathe. And with every exhale, see if I can make the body a little heavier or relax into the exhale. Then he would say one more thing. With every exhale, say the word calm and see what happens. Calm. And it's such a powerful thing, heavy, calm, simply on the exhale. As a skillful way of redirecting the mind when it's too much to hold the hindrance, but still attuning to an experience happening now. Is restlessness or so worry present right now or absent? so the last hindrance I wanna to touch upon with you to close is doubt. And doubt is sometimes hard to see. This idea of not being sure. I've seen a lot of people in New York City wearing a tattoo that says, trust no one, like a one. There's quite a bit of doubt in the world. And that can be very good reasons for doubting. It can also be very helpful to listen to an intuitive doubt before taking action. Because a lot of people have doubts in institutions you know, that are oppressing people. Doubting politicians. Doubting families. This sense of not being sure can also be directed to ourselves, doubting our ability. Can I do this? Am I able to be with restlessness or anger? The bowl of water, just again also to help you to get an image of it now, is water that is filled with turbid and mud. It's unsettled. And the bowl is placed in a dark place. So we're really kind of not really sure what to do. And in this context of doubt, it's also sometimes taught as, is there doubt in these teachings, in the teachers or in the Buddha? You know, some of the teachings might seem unclear, counterintuitive. And you notice the doubt. Now, what's it like to name it? And just like with all the other hindrances, the way to really be with it is to recognize it. And also externally. Sometimes it's helpful when you're with a friend and you can let them know, I think there's doubt here. Is that true? found it extremely helpful when that was done to me. Even doubt barring. Yeah, that's what's going on. That's what kind of explains my passivity and inactivity. The Buddha compared doubt to being lost in a desert, not to know where to go, left or right. And then we sometimes end up not doing anything at all. So I want to ask you, as we're coming to a close, this checking is doubt. Is it present or absent right now? And? can we find when the doubt is too strong an experience that we can trust in just like calming with restlessness can we trust there's a body unfolding vibrating tingling can we trust maybe the practice of loving kindness it can be really helpful when you feel doubt Also to notice if there's experiences unfolding in the moment that you trust or have faith in. I also found it extremely helpful when there's doubt to read or hear the Dharma. Or to connect again with my aspiration, like why am I on this path? Why am I doing this? So I'm going to close by asking you to check, what is your aspiration for being here, for walking this path to awakening? May the remembering of this aspiration be a guiding principle in meeting experience with as much kindness, curiosity, and care as possible. I want to thank you for your kind attention. And I encourage you to see if taking on Naming and recognizing of experience can be helpful. I just want to close by saying, may there be. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.